You are listening to the podcast of Recast Church in Matawan, Michigan. Hi, I'm Rob Canold. Welcome to Recast. Sorry for the mic problems. Uh, Don asked me to, to fill in for him preaching this morning, and I'm excited to do that uh, today. And uh, to be honest, uh, I don't preach here super often. It, it's been a few months, uh, maybe more like a year. So I wanted to introduce myself briefly for those who don't know me, and then we'll dig into uh, to the text this morning as we prepare our hearts for worship. Uh, I, uh, I am Rob Canold. Um, I'm married to my better half, Carrie Canold, who's not here in the first service. She's back teaching the four- and five-year-olds. Uh, So you may have met her that way, and uh, we have been here at Recast since the beginning, Uh, and what a blessing it's been. I've just been so grateful for what God has done here. I have three kids, their ages, uh, this David, Anna, Sarah, they're not here this morning, but uh, they're ages 24, 22, and 19, Um, and uh, it's just been great to, to see what God has been doing here over the years. I've had a chance to serve here in different roles as an elder, as uh, a worship, helping lead worship at times, and then also in the community groups. And that's really where I've enjoyed serving the most probably is, is in smaller settings. I, I just don't gravitate toward the upfront thing. Uh, I'm happy to do it, but uh, I really love to just connect in a smaller setting and get to know people and uh, build relationships that way and dig into God's Word. And that's the second thing I really enjoy and, and, and I guess I'm passionate about, and that is God's Word. Um, and I just wanted to expand on that for just a moment as, we, as we're getting prepared to, to dig into God's Word. And that is, um, I don't know if you've, you've been through different phases of life and you've read the Bible, you've read a passage, you know what it says, but you read it again and it just hits you in a new way. Uh, I've had that happen to me over and over again. I think God has a way of speaking to us through His Word at different points and at different times in our lives in, in fresh ways. And I just need that. I don't know about you. I need God's Word to speak to me because, frankly, without God's Word, what foundation do I have in life? Am I, am I, I'm, I'm basically um, getting blown around and buffeted by the waves, right, if I don't have that firm foundation in God's Word. So um, I'm so excited to turn to God's Word this morning and, uh, and read. But before I do that, we're going to be in the book of James this morning. And it is, uh, it is a book that I've been preaching through. So uh, it helps me as I preach to really preach through and have context, right, as I'm teaching. But I want to give you guys some context because you haven't been in James necessarily. So uh, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the book, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll read the passage together. So... Um, First of all, I just wanted to say that, that James was written by, uh, uh, many believe it's the half-brother of Jesus. So in the Bible, you'll read about James, and there's more than one James, so it gets confusing. There's James the Apostle. He was the brother of John, right? James and John. Um, well, he died fairly early. He was martyred uh, before the writing of the book, so he is not the author. And so the James that most believe wrote this book is the half-brother of Jesus. And who is he? Well, he, he actually didn't believe in Jesus. It says that the brothers of of uh, Jesus did not believe in him during his ministry on earth, but then Jesus went to the cross, died, and was, uh, was raised to life, and James saw him, met him, and then he ascended to heaven, and James then became a Christian. He didn't just become a Christian. He became a leader in the Jerusalem church. <clears throat> so the author of our book today, think about this, the half-brother of Jesus growing up rubbing shoulders with Jesus, that's got to be interesting, and secondly, uh, went from lacking faith to gaining faith as he uh, personally observed Jesus raised from the dead. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I'm excited to dig into that. We also um, will talk a little bit about um, 
what the book covers. So one of the interesting things about James is it's an epistle. It's a letter. James, uh, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. You know, he starts off the book writing a letter. He's, he's penning a letter to uh, who? To the Jewish believers who have been spread out amongst uh, the known world at the time around the Mediterranean. Probably Gentile believers as well, because we know that there were Gentile believers and Jew- Jewish believers in these cities. So this book is written to believing churches, um, but it's also a wisdom book. James, if you've ever read James, it, it just jumps from topic to topic and theme to theme, and it just hits you hard. It punches really hard. It's a lot like Proverbs with, with wisdom, with nuggets of information. And so it's often compared to Proverbs. It's kind of like the New Testament Proverbs. And, and for that reason, I have just really enjoyed um, reading and studying James over the years. Um, I'm going to give you just a taste of some of the topics that we've hit so far in the book of James as we, uh, as we prepare here. James 1, he starts off by saying, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He actually says, you should be joyful in trials. He says, trials are there for a reason in your life. You may want everything to go well. You may want a smooth ride. I know I do. Uh, I don't like the problems and the troubles, but God gives them to us for a reason, and it's to grow our faith. And we should be thankful for those things. He goes on to say in chapter one that we need to not just hear the word, but do the word. And James is really emphatic about this point, and it kind of that's a theme that keeps coming up in the book. He is all about action. You know, if if you hear the word and it goes in one ear and out the other and you don't do anything, what good is it? Why did, what, what benefit did it have? Zero benefit. So he says you need to hear the word and do the word. Then he goes on in chapter 2 to talk about partiality. That's the, the sin of favoritism, favoring one person over another, one group over another. And he addresses the rich over the poor specifically in chapter 2. Um, but really, any, any kind of favoritism that we show is sinful, and, and he addresses that. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the definition of true faith. True faith, he says, is accompanied by works. And a lot of people struggle with James at this point. They're like, wait a second. Uh, Paul says you're saved by faith alone and not by works. James, what are you saying? But the two are actually in agreement, as we dug into in a previous sermon. Basically, true, we are saved by faith alone. There's no doubt. There's no question. But true faith will result in works. It's not, it's not optional. It will happen. And that's, a, that's glory to God. He's the one who brings that about in our lives, right? But true faith will be accompanied by works, and James makes that point. In chapter 3, he talks about the power of the tongue, and we learned in that chapter how our words are super potent, super powerful. And, and James really singles out the leadership and says, if you're upfront teaching, like I'm doing right now, you need to guard your words, because words have a tremendous effect, both for good and for bad. And lastly, the last sermon I preached, it was about wisdom. There's really two types of wisdom at the end of chapter 3 that James talks about. Uh, a godly wisdom, which leads to all kinds of good fruit in your life. Think about uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, in, uh, in our lives, what we see is good things resulting from a godly wisdom. But he contrasts that with a worldly wisdom. And what is worldly wisdom? It's basically, well, have you looked around and paid attention to the culture at all, you probably could define this as well. It's, it's basically promoting myself and then basically envying and being jealous of what others have. And that's, that's how James defines worldly wisdom, uh, and he did that 2,000 years ago. And so we see that continue on today, but worldly wisdom leads to all kinds of sin. It, it, and it says, um, 
it, it just leads to all kinds of destruction. Again, remember, the audience is the church. He's saying worldly wisdom in the church leads to all kinds of sin within the church. And this passage today we're about to read, chapter 4, is expanding on that. It's talking about some of the fruits, some of the negative fruits coming from a worldly wisdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to dig into the text this morning, James chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. James chapter 4 and verses 1 through 10. So please pull out your Bibles if you have them, your, your phone, your app, and, um, and we'll dig in together. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But... He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That is our scripture for this morning. And I'm going to pray now as Dave comes to lead us in worship. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the text this morning. I thank you for your word. Um, God, sometimes it... it uh, um, is encouraging words, sometimes it's inspiring words, sometimes it's convicting words. God, I just thank you for um, all of the words, God. And, and the word you have given us um, is precious, God. It's, it's good to um, dig into it and hear it. Uh, but Father, I just pray as we, um, as we prepare to hear the, <laughs> the words that I preach in a moment, Lord, I just pray you, your spirit would be active and moving. Lord, we need you. Uh, we need you desperately in our lives. We need you in our hearts. We need you to bring conviction. Uh, we even need your help to worship properly, God. We get so distracted so often. I know I do um, with my mind wandering. God, we just ask that you would fill this place with your spirit to lead us and direct us into your throne room. I thank you, God, for, uh, for the chance to worship. It is a good thing to lift our hands and our hearts and our voices together. And so um, just pray uh, we would be united in worship together um, right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning, and again, back to, uh, back to the passage today. Excited to get back into James. Gave a little bit of an introduction on the book earlier, and we're going to dive right into the text now. And I want to just start by showing you a quick outline for the message this morning. Um, it is uh, a three-part uh, outline. And, and the first part there you can see on the screen is the problem, and it's problem number one. Uh, and that's verses one through three, and it's basically, it's sinful desires that are causing the conflicts. 
within the church. It's conflicts within the, the church body. Um, the second part of the outline is verses four and five, at, and that's really problem number two, which is it's not just uh, a broken relationship with, with each other, but it's a broken relationship with our God, our Heavenly Father. There's, there's a hostility with God that has to be dealt with. So there's two problems, and thank goodness for verses six through 10, the third part of our outline, which brings the solution uh, for us. It's God's grace. Uh, do, do, you know, we know that, right? But it's, it's, this is really uh, encouraging to finally arrive at the solution here, and we'll dig into uh, what that means and how, how that's applied in our lives. So that's the outline today, and we're going to start off with the first part, um, part one, verses one through three, and I just want to begin by, by looking at how James uh, phrases this first verse. He says, what causes quarrels, what causes fights? Um, you know, why, why do they happen? Uh, it seems like churches do have con- applicable areas there or with other friendships. What causes those? I think the word cause led me, as I was reading this, to, to jump into sort of work mode. I am a, a quality manager, and I've worked in the quality industry for, uh, for manufacturing uh, for years, and I just can't help but think about root cause. I think uh, Zach may have preached a sermon touching on uh, cause a little bit, root cause or some problem solving. But um, what I remember uh, in my experience in problem solving is, first off, first off, you have to define the problem. What is the problem that you're going after? If you don't know what it is, uh, it's very difficult to, to attack it. And, uh, and James lays that out for us here. It's, it's conflict. It's fights and quarrels, and he goes into detail. But then to get to root cause, usually uh, what you do is you, you need to gather data and you need to analyze and you need to dig into the root cause and get to the cause. Because why? Because if you don't understand what's causing a problem, it's very difficult to apply a solution. Uh, it's not very effective to just implement solutions that don't tie at all to the cause of the problem. So uh, James is very helpful this morning. He does all the hard work for us. And what we see here in verse 1 is he lays out the, the root cause of the problem of these conflicts. And what is it? It's, it's the passions that war within you. The passions that war within you. Um, I'm going to get into that word passions in just a moment, but I just first of all want to just tie together to the preceding passage and, and remind us what we're coming out of in chapter 3, and you're welcome to flip back there and look at the preceding verses, but specifically in verses 14 and 16 of chapter 3, um, James identifies a worldly wisdom that basically is defined, he defines it as envy and selfish ambition. It's basically self-promoting and it's being envious and jealous of others. And James is very strong in his language. He calls it a worldly wisdom. He even calls it demonic uh, of the devil. And, and, and he says, this is horrible stuff. And this is, have you ever thought that, you know, self-promotion and jealousy is, is demonic? I mean, it's very strong language, but that's how James uh, addresses it. And that's uh, the word of God uh, to us today. So when we're jealous and when we want stuff for ourselves, basically that leads to conflicts. And that's tying back to to that chapter three theme of worldly wisdom. Now I want to dig into that word passions for just a moment. So we said the cause was the passions in us. That's what leads to the conflict. So what do we mean by uh, by passions? Well, passions are uh, strong desires. They're things that we long for and want very, very badly. And, it, and passions in and of themselves are not wrong. Uh, we can have all kinds of good desires, uh, right? So, so what kind of passions are we talking about here? Um, well, first of all, I want to I point out that um, we can be led into sin 
uh, really in two ways here. First of all, our passions or desires may be for sinful things. And I think we would all agree, if I am desiring and, and, and longing for sin, that is wrong, just blatantly, flat out wrong. And that certainly can lead to all kinds of fights and quarrels. So that's, that's a very straightforward application of this section. There's another way that I think passions and longings and desires can lead to conflict, and, and that is sometimes we, we long for something that's good, and it's not that the desire that we have is wrong, it's what we do with it that's wrong. We want it so bad that we go and sin against our brother or sister in Christ because we just have to have what we want, right? And so you can want something that's, that's uh, good, but uh, it's really the application of, of, of what you do about that which leads us into sin. So really there's two potential paths into sin here that, that I believe we need to be mindful of. And to be honest, the second one is the one that I see happening more and more, more often, more frequently um, in the church. Because, and I'll just explain really quickly, I think it's because we have uh, what we, we feel very self-righteous in our desires, right? Like what I want is right. It's the good thing. And so we fight and we war with each other. And that leads to these conflicts. Now I need to find my, my place in my notes. You know, a couple of examples of this, these may be uh, trivial examples or silly examples, but I'll just give a couple examples really quick to, to bring this home. Um, we don't have a lot of carpet on our gym floor, but we do have some carpet on the stage back there. You know, we could, get, we could argue about the carpet color, right? Like, we want to replace the carpets, they're all stained, and we want, you know, one, one side of the church wants uh, blue carpet and the other side wants uh, brown carpet. Um, it's trivial, but, you know, sometimes we want something and we end up... Uh, overstepping and, and just making a bigger deal out of it than we need to, and that leads to conflicts and broken relationships. That is a silly example, but you can imagine and extrapolate that example. Another one is worship music. I know many churches that have really uh, just had division in the church over, you know, one, one, some people really, really, really want hymns and others really want uh, choruses, right? And, and it's, again, it's, it's, neither is wrong, and they're both good, and you can glorify God both ways, but sometimes we let our preferences and our desires uh, turn into conflicts uh, within the church. I think the, the, the question I wanted to ask is, as, as you examine your own heart this morning, and, and perhaps there's things you're desiring and wanting, uh, do, are there, is there anything that you need to self-identify that... Uh, uh, maybe you've, you've allowed your preference to lead to a conflict or a core with somebody else in the church, perhaps. Um, do we put ourselves above others? I think that's the question we need to ask. Are we putting our own preferences above others? Um, and, and we need to examine our own hearts. Verse 2 goes on and says it uh, even more clearly. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's, it's just amazing how strong this language is. Uh, our internal self de uh, self-centered desires are causing covetousness, jealousy, and that's, that's leading to all kinds of sin uh, in the body of Christ. Quarrels, fights, war, murder. I mean, the language is so strong. I read commentary on it, and, and, and it was some of the commentators were like, man, this was actually murder and people were killing each other. And, and that's possible back in, uh, in, the, in the early church age. But I think other commentators, most of the commentators felt that this was figurative language. It's really expressing just how serious broken relationships are inside the church. That it, it, is, it, is, um, it is horrible 
that, that the body of Christ would be split and divided and relationships would be uh, marred because of um, the jealousy and the fighting and the quarreling. You know, I, I wanted to, to ask some questions here. Do we realize when we break fellowship with each other and we hold a grudge, do we realize that we're fracturing Christ's body, the, the church? We are, we are, we're breaking it up. Um, when we get angry at each other over an offense and we, and we fail to forgive each other, uh, do we understand how sinful that is and the extensive damage it does to the body? Uh, I remember uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 explains the, the commandment, do not murder. And you guys remember that in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, uh, the commandment, do not murder. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, uh, he quotes the Old Testament and says, do not murder uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, whoever murders is subject to judgment. But, but then he goes on to say, whoever is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Whoever calls his brother fool is subject to hellfire. If we just name call in the church, if we disparage each other, that is equivalent to murder in, in, in the language of Jesus in Matthew 5. This is, uh, this is Jesus took it seriously. Uh, James took it seriously. We also ought to take it seriously um, as far as uh, saying bad things and, and uh, destroying uh, fellowship within the body. Um, a few weeks back, Don preached a sermon and he touched on communion. And it was about, do you remember this sermon? He says it's about remembering and he talked about connections within a church and the fellowship within a church. He used the word together. He said it's about celebrating the Lord's table together, communion. Celebrating the Lord's table and remembering together. And, and he encouraged us, even as an application point with communion. He said, when you pause before you take communion, if there's a broken relationship you have with another brother, go make that right. Go, go find that person and talk to them. Better to do that than to, to continue with communion. So again, there's a call to unity every week when we do communion. And when we do it later this, this morning, you'll have a chance to really reflect on that. Um, but I think sometimes it takes a little bit of courage to, to confront an issue, to confront a brother, and to resolve a conflict. But that's what God calls us to, is, is uh, resolving conflict, forgiving each other, and addressing uh, issues of relationships that are broken. Verse 2 ends with a statement, uh, you don't have because you don't ask. Pretty straightforward, right? You don't have because you don't ask. Um, and I think it, it is a call to supplication. It's a call to bring our requests before God and ask Him for things. Um, it reminds me of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything but everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's, we're, we're directed you know, in everything to present your request to God. Ask. That's what it says here. Um, but then verse 3 clarifies uh, something for us. He says at the beginning of verse 3, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask basically for selfish reasons, to spend it on your own pleasures, to spend it on your passions. Um, are our prayers selfish? That's a little bit convicting, right? Um, he's asking us why, uh, he's challenging us that sometimes we ask with wrong motives. Um, so I think, I think it's important that we ask. Uh, it's also important that we examine our hearts, and, and I think in time, God will... Uh, as, as we grow closer to God, and we're going to talk about nearness to God and what that means in a little bit, but as we draw near to God, His desires become our desires, and those, and those align. 
John 14, 14, Jesus says something very, very similar to James here, and, and he says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, a lot of us have probably heard that verse uh, and, and, and maybe memorized that and seen it on coffee mugs or, or in quoted oftenly, often out of context. Uh, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. I thought it was interesting to read the preceding verse, which, which says the identical thing with an added clarification. It says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We are, we are to ask for things, yes, so that God would be glorified. That, that's the point. And I think um, anytime we're reading Scripture, we need to look at that context. The following uh, also details an explanation uh, of this verse as well. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then he goes on to say that he's, Jesus is going to send us his spirit. Uh, these are all great promises. But the point is, I think, taken together, that we should love God and obey God and be filled with his spirit and aligned with his purposes, and we should be bold in asking for things, and that those things bring glory to God. I mean, that's, that's the whole message in context. So again, very, very important to examine those verses in context and ask, and really what the point and the reason I'm bringing all this up is when we ask, sometimes we just fail to ask, we're, we're lazy and we don't pray, but then sometimes we pray, but we're, we're praying for all the wrong things. And, uh, and we, get, we get frustrated with God, right? He's not answering me. He's not giving me what I want. I think there, again, we, we, have, we have a very um, mixed up idea of how this whole relationship with God works. Um, he is God and we're the servants, uh, he's in control, and, and we aren't uh, one to command him and demand, and, and he's not a genie that some people will treat God like a genie and just ask for things and expect him to, to deliver. I think it's also important to know that God is a giver of good gifts. So think about it this way. If you're asking for something, to spend it on your passions or whatever, as this text says, and they're not good for you, they're bad things, and you're asking for them, why would God give you bad things? He is not a giver of bad gifts. It said earlier in James, it, God is a giver of good gifts. So he's not going to give you the wrong thing. And, and so when God gives gifts, they're always good. So I think that um, we need to realize he is a, uh, a good God. And when we're asking for things and we're not receiving them, I think it's, it's healthy and helpful to examine our motives. What are you asking for? Why, why do you want that thing? And perhaps God can bring conviction there to change our desires and help us align with, with Him. All right, so we're going to move on to part two in the outline. It's verses four and five, friendship with the world causes hostility with God. And this second point in the outline uh, really shifts us from the broken relationship we have with others because of our sinful passions leading to conflict and hostility with others. And now it shifts to the broken relationship we have with God. You know, we were designed as people to be in relationship with each other and with God. That's exactly what, that's what we're here for, and that's, that's how He made us. And so it, what a travesty when those relationships are broken. And as we look at the broken relationship with God, um, James starts off verse 4 with some of the strongest language I've seen uh, in Scripture. He says, you adulterous people, He is calling them adulterers. Um, super strong language. Uh, and, and why? Because they're being unfaithful to God. By, and, and what he defines how they're being unfaithful. What is it that he says? 
by being friends with the world. And what is friendship with the world? What does that mean? It means basically um, aligning ourselves with the world's systems, with the world's priorities, and with the world's values. So when when it says the world, being, being a friend of the world is really talking about um, buying into everything that the world tells you and, and living according to the world. Um, again, I'm just going to repeat what I said earlier. Worldly wisdom, putting yourself first, being envious and jealous of others. Um, and verse 4 here clearly says that if you're a friend of the world, then that means you're an enemy of God. And that's that broken relationship with God that we... Um, are digging into here. I'm, I'm going to point to one other passage, and again, it's amazing how, how aligned Scripture is. And I love seeing that alignment because it just reinforces and helps bring clarity to our understanding of what this passage is teaching. John, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. The Apostle John says essentially the same thing as, as uh, we see here from James. He says, "'Do not love the world or anything in the world.'" If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world. So he actually defines in this next phrase, he defines this this term world, right? That we talked about. For everything in the world. What is it? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things that we want, our flesh wants, our, our human nature wants sinfully, the things that our eyes long for, lust for, and desire, and, and covet, and uh, the pride of life, uh, just boasting and being, being confident in ourselves and our own strength. Those are not of the Father, but of the, of the world. So let's slow down here for just a moment and think about what this means. How are we to remain and function in the world and without becoming friends with the world. How do we do that practically? And I, and I think this is something that uh, is worth exploring a little deeper. It is not easy. Uh, we are commanded to love those around us and, and connect with them and engage with them. And yet at the same time, we're not to fall in love with the world, the way the world values things and the world's systems and priorities. So you know, what does this mean practically? I'll, I'll uh, just use a few examples here. Is it okay? So uh, if you have a secular job, you work, you know, wherever in, in, uh, in a job that's, um, uh, is that okay to throw yourself into your job, to be, um, to be a hard worker, to be diligent? Is that all right? Or um, let's just say another example of stuff in the world like, like art. Is it okay to just enjoy art, beautiful art that's around you, or to be into uh, sports, and you're just a huge fan of the Detroit Lions. Uh, wish they were playing tomorrow. Um, or, or hunting, or fishing, or whatever your hobbies. Like, is it okay to be passionate and desire and love those things? And is that being worldly? Have we crossed the line? And, you know, you might get, you might start wondering some of those questions. I would, I would just tell you, first off, that God is a giver of good gifts, and many of those things are are beautiful and great things, and there's nothing sinful in those things. But I do want to just help draw the line here. If you are seeking your ultimate happiness and joy in those things, yes, those can be false idols, they can be false hope, they can be uh, dangerous pursuits that, that consume us. Um, you know, let me give an example. I love sports and I play sports. And like if you're playing sports 
and it is all about you. You want the glory, and you want to be recognized, and you want everyone to uh, um, look up to you because of that, then, and you're seeking that approval from others, then I'd say that that has crossed the line, and it, and it is simple. And again, you need to examine your own hearts in, these, in some of these areas. Um, I would encourage you to, to uh, just draw the line here very clearly. Don't chase after things of the world like money, wealth. Clearly, we're commanded that that is a false hope and a false God. Power and control over all, all the things around you. Pleasure. And, and don't try to find your fulfillment in those type of things. Those are false idols. They're, they're terrible gods. You can spend your entire life chasing them, and at the end of your life, you're going to find out it's just completely empty, completely worthless. Um, so there, there is no God but our Heavenly Father. So we're going to move on now to verse 5. Verse 5, and it says, and it quotes here very specifically, it says, Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Scripture says he has yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Uh, the thing I would just explain about this uh, verse is it's not a specific quote of Scripture, but it's rather a summary statement summarizing uh, what the Bible teaches about this. Um, in fact, it just explains that God yearns jealously for us. We know in the Old Testament, we see that God is a jealous God. And sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but I've wondered about that, like, it's wrong for me to be jealous. Why isn't it wrong for God to be jealous? There's a difference. Um, and and the, the primary difference is God is the greatest. <laughs> and when God is jealous for our attention and affection, He desires us to desire Him, which is the greatest thing. There is nothing better. So when we say God is a jealous God, we're actually explaining a truth about God, that that there is nothing higher and better than God. It may sound confusing. Again, for us to be jealous, we may may be envying. That could be wrong. But for God to be a jealous God is, is not wrong. Also, we are His bride. And when we belong to Him, when we express faith and trust in Him, uh, He desires that we would seek and desire Him above all else. And those other things we would chase after that I mentioned earlier, power, wealth, uh, whatever we would seek for fulfillment are cheap and lousy gods. And God is jealous that we would desire Him for His glory and really for our own good. And that brings us to part three of our outline, verse 6. And I just love uh, turning the page and getting started on this section because it brings a, some hope. It, it brings a solution to the problems of conflict that we've been seeing, the broken relationships with others and with God. And what does it say here? But God gives more grace. But God gives more grace. And it, it's a simple, profound statement in the midst of fighting, quarreling, coveting, broken relationships with others and God. And, and to be honest, it's, it, we're just lost in a bunch of hopelessness until God brings His grace, His unmerited favor, which is a gift we don't deserve. I know I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Uh, praise God for His grace. But it's not just grace, it's more grace. That word more is also encouraging because no matter how much sin, there's always more grace. Praise God. He is able to overcome anything that we have stumbled on and messed up in our lives, there is always more grace, more grace. So keep turning back to God. 
He is faithful to, to just keep applying more and more grace. And then that leads us to um, this specific quote from the Old Testament that is, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I love how this um, ties together God's part and our part. Uh, what is God's part? He brings the grace. What is our part? We bring the humble. <laughs> That's kind of a weird way to say it, but basically our job is to, to just be humble. Um, so how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? If, if, you're, if you're bought in here and if you're in agreement, this is exactly what we need to do. The next question is, well, how do I do that? And that's not an easy answer, but the, the next verses really help explain it. They, they're going to help break this down for us. So I'm excited to, to follow through um, what this means in, in humility. But before we go to the next verses, I just want to explain something really important. Uh, we're going to see a lot of practical application, a lot of commands. James is going to be very prescriptive. Do this, do this, do this. But it all starts with grace. It starts off with God gives grace to us, okay? And then that enables us to respond with these subsequent verses. So let's go through that um, very quickly here. In, in we see in verse 7, in humbling ourselves, it says to submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. So the word submit here is um, it's not a passive word. I think sometimes we read the word submit and we think, okay, I'll just lay down, I'll be a doormat, and, and uh, that's my role, okay, whatever. Uh, that is not what this word means. To submit to God is actually an active word, uh, and, and it actually means to enlist or enroll. And I would equate it to enlisting in, in the military, in the army. So if you are enlisting in the military... Uh, you are certainly submitting, but you're agreeing to obey the commands given to you by your commanding officer and to follow those commands. And that is exactly what we're doing. Spiritually, we're submitting to God. He is our commanding officer. He calls the shots. We don't call the shots anymore. We're submitting our will to his, but it is an active word. It is, you know, it is, uh, it is preparing to go into battle, um, to use a military analogy. That is, that is what we do when we submit to God. The word resist, when we say resist the devil, is not as much of an active word, but is more of, of, of standing your ground. In fact, I would uh, tie this to um, something the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6. You remember the armor of God? Many of us have read those passages in Ephesians 6. And what does he say? Put on the armor of God. And then he says, what do he say? Stand firm. He says, he repeats the word stand like two or three times in, in Ephesians 6. And that is what it means to resist the devil, to stand, to stand on the promises of God, to stand on the word of God, to stand armed with that spiritual armor that um, enables us to resist the devil. And I think here when it says resist the devil, it's standing firm. So after submitting to God and resisting the devil, uh, we see uh, next in verse 8, um, we are to draw near to God, draw near to God. And I, and I think it's a good thing to ask, how do we draw near to God when He's omnipresent? Have you ever thought about that? How do I, how do I draw near to God if He's already everywhere and He's already near me? Like, I can't get any nearer, right? 
Um, that's true from a location standpoint, but I believe this word nearness is not just talking, it's not talking about location or proximity as it is about relationship. So um, let me ask, uh, how many of you have uh, loved ones that are uh, far away? You know, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. You know, I do. I have family in California. I am not near my, f- my parents, for example, in proximity, but I am very near them in my heart. I'm close to them. Does that make sense? You can have a very close relationship with someone who's very far away. And so when we talk about nearness here and, and God says, draw near, to, draw near to God, James says, draw near to God, um, he's talking about that relationship. We're to draw near to God in relation. And that's really, um, <clears throat> think about it. What, what makes you, if you say, hey, I'm really, I'm really close to my dad, what does that mean? It means you love your dad a lot, right? There's a, there's a tight relationship there. That's what that means. And so that's what it's, we're supposed to do with our Heavenly Father. Set our affections on Him and draw near to Him in that way. Verse 8 goes on to say, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We are not to continue in sin. That is not God's desire for you. Uh, we're to cleanse our hands. Those are the outward acts, uh, the outward acts that we do. And then purifying our hearts are the, the inner thoughts and the inner motives. And all of this is in really in response to God's grace, cleaning up our acts, uh, cleaning up our heart and our motives. We talked about that, aligning our heart with God's will. How does all this happen? It, it happens because God gives us His grace and we draw near to God, and He slowly, through sanctification, begins to change us. I think the, the important thing to, to clarify here is we are not to continue in sin. We do need to clean up our external acts. James is not mincing words here. In response to what God has done, we should not continue in sin. And I think that's a, that's a powerful message in our culture in our day. I think a lot of people want to keep dabbling in sin and say, God's grace covers me. No, God does not give you grace so you can continue in sin. Yes, we all stumble. Yes, we all fail. We know that. I'm not saying that's not reality. But when we are saved, we are saved for good works, not to continue in sin. So we should, we should stop doing evil with our hands externally. We should begin to set our affections and our hearts on God, which he does uh, by changing us on the inside. And then verse 9 says, we should be wretched and mourn and weep. And this is true repentance. Um, it's, it's not treating your sin lightly. It's not saying, well, uh, I messed up. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm sorry, God, and, and move on. You know, that's not true repentance. You know, tr- true repentance is grieving over the sin that we've committed. I, I, I was just thinking about this passage, and I asked myself this question, so I'll ask you as well. When was the last time that you actually wept, physically tears over your sin? When have you wept? I, I struggled to remember and, and think back on that. And, and, you know, are we just too callous? Are we too hardened? Do we just um, ignore our sin or pretend it's no big deal? Um, James is not saying that sin is no big deal. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. He says, let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
You know, it's, it's tempting to just sweep it aside and ignore our sin, um, but we need to acknowledge it and repent over it and mourn over it and ask God for help in, in changing and turning from it. And verse 10 wraps it up here with a conclusion that we, if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. And this is um, just a super encouraging ending to this passage. Um, God lifts us up in due time. Our job is to humble ourselves and God will, will raise us up. And I just want to draw a quick comparison to some comical, I guess what I view as comical examples of our society. I watch sports. I enjoy uh, watching sports, I'll be honest. And I, you know, it cracks me up how pro athletes are just always kind of chest thumping and posing and doing the Superman pose and all these things, right, to, to draw attention to themselves, it seems. And, and that's just so captures this thought of the world's priorities, uh, seeking fame, seeking glory, um, seeking attention. That is not what this passage says. It's the exact opposite. I don't think it could be more polar opposites. God says, humble yourself. The world says, boast, make much of yourself. Lift yourself up as high as you can lift yourself. Um, two very opposite messages. But we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and wait for Him to lift us up. Do you trust that God's going to take care of you in that? Do you trust Him? Trust Him to lift you up in due time. He'll take care of you. So in conclusion, I'm going to wrap this up with, uh, with, with one particular application. You know, I don't know if, if God is convicting you. He is a much better uh, uh, at applying Scripture to your life than I am. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. And so I would encourage you just to listen to whatever God and, and through His Spirit is bringing in terms of conviction. But I want to bring one point here, and that is just this point of humbling ourselves, which is not easy to do. Um, Sometimes we can't even see the pride in our heart. I know that's the case for me. Sometimes I, pride, pride is so insidious. It just seeps in and you're prideful and you don't even realize it. So, so certainly I would ask you, encourage you to ask God to open your eyes to any, any pride that's lurking there. I know it has in, mine, in my heart. And then there's a temptation to be falsely humble. And false humility is like putting myself down. Oh, woe is me. I'm horrible. And you, and you vocalize that to those around you in hopes that maybe they'll say something encouraging, right? Like that's false humility. It's, it's sometimes tempting to, to put ourselves down and we feel good about putting ourselves down. That sounds really weird. Uh, why? Because, well, look how humble I am. I'm being so humble. And then, we, and then we get really good at being humble and then we're proud about it. Well, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, but it's, it's real. Like, you know what? I mean, you start to do something well, even a good thing, and suddenly pride seeps in and you find yourself being prideful about the, the very thing that you were um, previously sinning about and finally on the right track. So pride is insidious. I would encourage you to humble yourself. And, and it's not easy, uh, but I do want to just say this. I think humility is, is best defined as seeing yourself rightly in relationship to God so hard to do. I mean, I think we sometimes see ourselves, oh, I'm horrible. And then sometimes we think, man, I got this nailed. I'm pretty good. Look at me. Uh, we have so much trouble seeing ourselves rightly in relationship to God. He is great. We are small. He is awesome and perfect. And, and we are not. We are imperfect. We need to recognize God and his characteristics. You know, he is dependent on nothing and no one we are dependent on Him for absolutely everything. For grace, for hope, for life, 
literally the air we're breathing. So how do we humble ourselves? It, it ties back to the text, drawing near to God. We need to draw near to Him to, to get to know Him better, to spend time with Him. There's no shortcut. You need to spend time with God, uh, drawing near to Him. Um, and that will help us, I think, in our understanding of God and our understanding of ourselves and rightly seeing ourselves and having a humble perspective. So my exhortation to you is humble yourself. And don't worry, if you don't humble yourself, God will, Lord willing. Uh, he has a way of doing that, doesn't he? In my life, it's true. And, uh, and it's not a threat, by the way. It's, it's actually a good thing, right? God humbling us, as painful as that might be in our lives, could be the best thing that happens to us. So don't worry. If you don't humble yourself, God, you can trust that God may bring, bring that uh, in your life. And then, of course, I got to land on this. He just keeps giving us more grace. He just gives us more grace. Praise God. So, um, you know, there was only one person who was perfectly humble, and that was Jesus Christ. And he paid the ultimate price in, sang, in sacrificing himself and laying himself down on the, uh, to the point of death. He, he came to this earth to die for us, to pay the price for our sins. And that's what we end our services on uh, each week. And it's a very intentional thing. We want to bring ourselves back to the cross, which is that central point um, in history where God entered into this world physically and gave himself for us. And, just, and, and I am so thankful to God for that. I hope we all are. We're going to um, stop now and, and, uh, and do communion. Dave's going to come and, and lead us in a song in a moment. If, if you're a believer, uh, I would just encourage you, remember what Don said earlier, uh, we're going to remember together. Uh, this is a together thing. Uh, op- keep your eyes open, your head up, and smile, and, and, and it's good to interact with each other. We're doing this together. We are in one family, the family of God. And, you know, if there's something that you have against another believer, again, great opportunity to, to reflect on that and get that right and, and go and, uh, and reestablish that friendship as we come together to take the elements. Um, so I'm going to pray as Dave comes, and we'll uh, take the uh, communion together. Father God, you are good to us. Your Son, you know, in very nature, God, in human form, sacrifice for our sins. God, the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament sacrificial system, it's just, uh, it's just incredible how you, how you did this. You worked through history to save us. Lord, um, what a travesty that we would take your grace lightly and treat sin like it's no big deal. God, you didn't treat sin lightly. You, you, you gave up your son to pay for that sin. For, you, for, for our deliverance. So God, as we come to communion, it is a sober thing. It is a somber thing in the sense that we're remembering Jesus' death for us. But it is a celebration and a joyful thing as we think about new life, new hope. Lord, freedom from sin, the shackles of sin. Lord, you've given us so much through Jesus Christ. And we just, um, just want to thank you for what you've done in our lives, what you continue to do. Um, thank you for your grace continued to be applied in our lives. Um, and we just uh, want to enter into this week um, loving you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.